Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Today's podcast is presented by EPRA, the European Public Real Estate Association. Facing global megatrends like green transition and aging population, how will listed real estate contribute to a sustainable future and financial security for Europe? Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential, the number one EU politics podcast. I'm Ryan Heath, political editor at Politico Europe, back in Brussels this week after a couple of weeks away in DC and London. And this episode, we're back with a big guest, European Competition Commissioner Margrethe Vestager, slayer of corporate big beasts such as Apple, darling of European liberals, including Emmanuel Macron, and a possible candidate to be the next president of the European Commission. Vestager tells us about her political heroes, how she thinks rule of law can be delivered across Europe, and why she never likes to be told what to do. We'll also hear from our Brussels Brains Trust. This week it's Alva Finn and Carmen Porn in the hot seat, as Lena Rabarus takes a well-deserved holiday. But we'll start with the big topic in Brussels this week, the European Commission unveiling its plans for the next long-term EU budget. Now, we must remember, the budget negotiation is a two-year trillion euro bun fight that started Wednesday. But what else would you expect from not an annual budget, but a seven-year budget? Not even communist China takes on a budget that ambitious. This time round, just to make things more complicated, the Brits are leaving, and they're taking their money with them. And the Commission wants the EU to do more and spend more on a smaller set of issues. It also wants to cut off funds to countries that don't respect rule of law. A not-so-subtle message to Poland and Hungary. So let's talk about the big issues behind the budget with Politico reporter Lily Bayer. So, first of all, welcome to Brussels, Lily. Thank you. And welcome to this crazy world that we call the EU budget process. It's fun already. Well, I'm going to take your word for it, but it's a very polite answer. Why don't we dive into it? This was really the story that dominated talk across town this week, and for good reason. It was quite controversial and quite substantial what the Commission was proposing. What's your first take on who are the winners and the losers out of what was announced by Gunter Oettinger yesterday? So the fight is just starting, and I think that a lot of governments are still trying to figure out where exactly they stand with this proposal, but I think there are a few key winners and losers. In terms of the losers, we saw Hungary and Poland incredibly uncomfortable with the Commission's proposal to link rule of law to EU funds, even though the Commission tried to go about it in a very roundabout way, linking more to financial standards of uh, accountability and independence of the judiciary. Poland and Hungary know that they are the targets of this, and they are incredibly nervous. I think that the winners, for the large part, are research programs, digital programs, big corporations that would benefit from these programs, southern European countries that have really wanted more money for migration and border control, 
So even though we've seen some concerns out of Italy about cuts to cohesion, I think that overall they are pretty happy with some of the numbers they're seeing. And they were really quite extraordinary. If you look at those research numbers, once you deduct what the UK received in this budget round, comparing the current funding to what came out yesterday, it's a 50% increase. I mean, that sort of stuff doesn't happen very often in EU decision-making, does it? Right. So I assume there are some academics and researchers celebrating right now. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's focus on this debate around the conditionality of EU funding now. The EU has struggled for years now with Hungary, and it's certainly been in a very tight spot with Poland over the last two years. It tried dialogue, it tried outvoting them on certain issues in the council, and that hasn't really brought those countries back into the European mainstream. And it's almost as if one of the few options it has left now is to put this threat into how it spends its money. Do you think that it's an empty threat? Is there a real chance that this is a system that could come into practice? Or is it going to be one of those cases where the Visegrad 4 group simply blocked this in the council and the commission said what it wanted to say, Poland and Hungary blocked what they wanted to block, and then things kind of just continue on as they are? So what's for sure is that the Commission's lawyers were very creative about this proposal. This proposal is not a part of the official MFF. That means that technically Hungary and Poland could be outvoted to to put this through. However, they could still threaten to veto the entire budget over this. Another thing to keep in mind is that Even with this proposal, we're still down to the issue of political will, because even under the current framework, the European Commission could have been a lot stronger when it comes to Hungary and Poland, especially with Hungary and mismanagement of funds, alleged mismanagement of funds. They could have gone after them. There are a lot of OLAF cases that they could have pointed to, and they chose in a way not to. And with this new framework, we could fall into the same trap where on paper there will be a framework in a way for the commission to take instances of corruption and to go to the other, to the net contributors and say, Hungary and Poland are misusing funds, therefore we should cut them off. And yet we could still end up in the same place where the big member states simply don't want to go down that path. They don't want to cut funding. They're afraid of Eurosceptic backlash. They're afraid that these governments will only use the suspension of funds to further rile up anti-Brussels and anti-West sentiments. I guess that's really the difficult spot that the EU is in, where it's once again casting itself as the policeman. And what we learned from the whole process of the Greek bailout and, and these last 10 years, really, is that the EU often succeeds in getting what it wants on paper, but that it brings a lot of unintended consequences or unplanned consequences on itself. And you're almost saying we can foresee these consequences, that it really can go wrong for the commission even if they get what they want out of this budget process. Right. And I think that with Hungary and Poland, the commission is very well aware of how this is playing out domestically in these countries. And they're also aware that when it comes to economic conditionality, they've let countries off the hook before, like Spain and Portugal on various issues, and that going after Poland and Hungary may seem to some voters like an unfair decision. So I think that they are laying the legal ground work being incredibly creative about this to try to have a stick here. But they also know that the chances of actually going through with the entire process and implementing sanctions are actually very small. 
And what's the timeline here? In the past, it's taken upwards of two years to complete an EU budget negotiation. The Commission has tried to be very ambitious this time around. It wants it done and dusted by the time Brexit occurs and the European elections are taking place this time next year. Do you think there's a chance of that? Or are we really looking at, at something that does stretch out for much longer? It does seem like every budget veteran in this town is saying that there's absolutely no way that this budget process will be concluded before the elections, which does raise the question of what happens next, because, of course, the parliament does have to officially sign off on the budget. They are the weakest institution when it comes to budget negotiations, but the commission and the council, of course, still need their approval. So what happens if there is a new parliament? What happens if it's a more Eurosceptic parliament that wants to see a smaller, less ambitious budget? Those questions are all very much on the table. Well, Lily, thank you very much for that rundown. And everyone listening, keep an eye out for Lily's stories. She's going to keep them coming at a very rapid pace over the next month. And uh, it's your best way to understand what's going on in this EU budget process. Thanks, Ryan. And check out our weekly Monday afternoon budget briefing as well. Very good advice. Now it's time to turn to Margrethe Vestager, the European Competition Commissioner. But before we do that, I want to give you a little context. I sat down with her in her office on the 10th floor of the EU's Berlamont headquarters, an office piled with art and cool chairs and Jörg Jensen design. But before we did that, we spent the morning together in Mechelen, a diverse city of 80,000 people about 20 minutes outside of Brussels. The city is home to 138 nationalities and more Muslims than all of Hungary. So. What on earth was Europe's liberal-affiliated competition czar doing there with the city's liberal mayor, Bart Zomers, who was named World Mayor of the Year in 2017? And why did I get the invite from the Liberal Party rather than from commission staff? I went hunting for Margrethe Vestager, the candidate, the Spitzen candidate to be precise, given that she has been mentioned as a strong liberal contender to replace her boss, Jean-Claude Juncker, in 2019. And what I found was Vestager in more of a pre-candidate phase, doing her homework rather than pressing the flesh. She met with the head of a temporary refugee shelter, with social workers not afraid to get their hands dirty, literally, by chatting with clients while helping them wash their dishes, and with participants in a city-sponsored cross-cultural speed dating system. Vestaya took notes Hillary Clinton style, but with an easy charm. So, let's compare notes with Margrethe Vestaya now. Margrethe Vestager, mm-hmm. we spent the morning together in Mechelen, yes. which is a Flemish city, and we were looking at how that very small, very diverse city is handling social integration. Mm-hmm. It was a very, let's say, downtrodden city, maybe that's a fair way to describe it, would it you agree? It used to be, yes, yeah. it used to be. As they told us, it used to be nothing, because uh, industry had emptied, uh, people didn't trust their local municipality. They weren't proud to live in the city, but they had made this amazing turnaround. In 15 years, it's completely reversed. People are proud of living in Mechelen, and they trust their local authorities. And I can attest to that. I had an acquaintance that I met through journalism. He became a friend, and he ended up renting my apartment in Brussels. And he was a Syrian refugee, brought his family out here, and he was actually so attracted to Mechelen and the message that it had Mm -hmm about welcoming him 
and actually giving him a, a standing start in Belgian society. That he he said goodbye. I'm going to run to Mechelen. Thanks for the apartment, but I've got a better offer. So I can really attest firsthand to that turnaround that's happened there. But that world and that discussion, that's a long way from your day job at the EU, the, the merger control, the antitrust, the state aid decisions. What, what was uh, driving you to accept that invitation? Yes, indeed. But I think to some degree it serves the same purpose, to make people feel that they have a fair chance of making it, that they are counted in, that we work on behalf of citizens to make sure that they are empowered to do whatever they want to do with their life. And uh, I know Bert Thomas, and uh, I've heard about him. And he's the mayor. Of he's Michael. the mayor, and he has been the mayor uh, under this amazing turnaround. And, and I think one of the main architects, because he he's capable of living what he's saying. So I wanted to to see more of his uh, his people, more of his teams, that has made this come true. And is that one of the challenges in your day job that you've got these? highly specialized people that work in your department. Like no one would ever doubt their brains. But when people operate here in the Berlemont or in the EU bubble, sometimes it is hard to stay rooted in reality. It's, it's Sometimes you can forget where you came from. And is that a challenge that you try and tackle personally or that you try and remind yourself of? Mayors are kind of my heroes because they are hands-on people. They are accountable. They are held responsible for sort of very specific things. Are my children taken care of? Does the school work? Does the road have holes or not? And they are in very direct contact with citizens. And their approach can be sort of a, a make or break for the city. And, uh, and I really like this, that you, you have a vision, you want to do things, and you take action. And to some degree, of course, you, you're right that there's a big distance. But I feel that I have the privilege also of doing something that's hands-on because the decisions we take they take effect immediately you may appeal and go to court but you still have to pay the fine now one thing that really struck you if i interpret your reactions correctly was that you were very impressed by the simplicity of some of the solutions Mm -hmm. so i don't mean that they were basic in the way that some people come up with simple political solutions Mm -hmm. to complex problems but it was about really removing barriers where possible making making support easy, treating people Mm. as individuals, looking them in the eye and not treating them as a a category of person, but as a a real person, eye to eye. Is that a fair assessment of your reaction or or, or what did you like No, no, that's a completely fair assessment. And it's one of the things that keep troubling me, provoke thoughts, that what I feel myself, and I think most people feel it like this, you don't like to be told. You don't like to be treated like someone, just someone in a group. You don't want other people to live your life for you. That we don't take this as a starting point for everyone. And they are capable of doing this. And it's not an easy thing. Because it's much more challenging to do things together for the long haul than say, ah, let me fix it for you. And then you have a solution for five minutes and then everyone is back where they started. And is that something that we can apply into European level debates. I'm thinking Poland and Hungary are on everyone's minds this week as the EU comes out with a a fairly robust, impressively radical budget proposal. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot to chew through there. And then one thing that dominated the headlines there was that that might be a way to finally tame Poland and Hungary somehow. But 
I think that the commission's also been pursuing dialogue first as its strategy. So how do we make that connection with Poland and Hungary? It, it very much, their approach very much have reminded me of the impressive efforts of, uh, of our first vice president, Franz Timmerman, because he has been responsible for the entire process with Poland from the very first days when we got concerned that there was a systemic threat to the rule of law in Poland. And of course, the treaty gives you a number of sort of very specific steps that you can take. They're quite hard-nosed. And even though some of those steps has been taken, he has been insisting, with of course the full backing of our colleagues and myself, of course, to insist that dialogue is still open. Dialogue is still a possibility. We are still open to find solutions so that you can get away from this track of systemic threats to the rule of law into another set of waters. And it's not necessarily to follow the template of your neighboring country or the neighboring neighboring country, because rule of law can be achieved in a number of different ways. And I found that it was very inspiring and rewarding to see the same approach, because I found that also in Mechelen, they say, well, well, if you do something that's a crime, it has consequences. We're not, in that respect, soft. But at the same time, we respect you, we count on you, we want to find ways with you so that change can happen. It's that together point, the with you point, where I wonder then, I don't know what the specific example would be, but if you're imagining Hungary or Poland being the client in the Mechela situation, it's trying to find where Poland or Hungary might have a point and then use that to build some common ground with the, the core point that Brussels is trying to make. I think that very often people have a point. And if you listen very carefully, you can figure out, well, what is it that is really being discussed here? What are the concerns? From where comes the frustration that has turned into anger, that has turned into confrontation? But you need to have the time. And, um, and you need to be willing to say, well, this is for the long haul. This is not something that will happen in a week or in a month. This is a long haul. And what they, of course, where, where it bites in Mechelen is that they have no defined enemies. They have no defined opposition. They seem to find the opposition in themselves. I have to overcome myself to do something new tomorrow than what I did today in order to work with people and maybe to find solutions that were not at all the solutions I myself imagined. So in, in that respect, I think that they are living sort of the European mantra, united in diversity. Now, dialing it back up to the European level, I know you're probably going to tell me that you're focused on the, the job you're doing right now, but there are a lot of people from Emmanuel Macron down who find you to be a very impressive politician. And there are certainly people inside your own liberal Aude group who'd love for you to run to be commission president when the elections take place in 2019. Is that something you've given thought to? Would you consider being the liberal candidate there? I've heard that too. Tells me, of course, that one of the things that Danish politics and European politics has in common is that the rumor machine works very well. The mill is, is going round. Actually, I don't know. And that is the truth of it. And that is mostly because, as you say, I have a day job. And uh, we really try to make sense of it for Europeans, if not on a daily basis, then hopefully very often. And that is the absolute top priority. But you'd be open to it, potentially. You don't rule it off the table. Well, I think the interesting thing in Europe for the next uh, year and a half is to figure out where we want to go. Because it's the mandate of the next commission president 
That's the interesting thing. How will Parliament and Council commit to say, well, this is where we want to go and this is what we expect of the Commission? This is the most important point, much more important that who is going to make it come true. And we have a real issue potentially with the Parliament as well, where it seems clear that the European People's Party and the Socialists, they're going to very much struggle to get a block of 50% of the vote. How much the centre can get over that 50% line perhaps depends upon Emmanuel Macron and the Liberals and how well they can work together. But if we struggle to get 50% centrist majority, that would really change the ball game when it comes to what can be done about the future of Europe. We don't know. And for obvious reasons, I think it is very important to respect what will voters say. What kind of European Parliament will they give us? And in order for voters to, to make up their mind, Well, then, of course, we need a debate. Where do we want to go? This commission has focused on a smaller number of issues. The budget proposal that we have just tabled is a reflection of that. Where can we spend where it makes sense to spend together? Because otherwise, member states can spend by themselves or not spend if they don't want to. Where does it make sense to spend together? What are our top priorities? Investing in youth in research and, uh, and development, innovation, in climate, but also in border control, managing illegal immigration, protecting refugees. So this commission has taken steps that are much more focused, hopefully more decisive. But now there is a discussion, do we want to take this further or do we want to do something else? And is there any way that you can imagine contributing to that vision that Emmanuel Macron laid out in his Sorbonne speech? We're seeing the citizens' consultations. They're coming to Brussels this weekend. And then they'll roll out next week via surveys that are supported by all 28 national mm. governments, is what I've been hearing. Is that something that excites you or that you'll get involved in yourself? But that, I think, is a great idea. Also, because coming from Denmark, you know, we have had a number of experience where, you know, the wisest of people have designed a new treaty And then we have put that out to people, to the electorate, say, what do you think about it? And very often they say, hmm, we know what we got. We don't know what we're going to have. We don't know how this is going to work. So better vote no. And I think this completely different approach to say, well, what do we really want? And then discuss that from another point of view and from another input. I think that's very promising. Very good. Well, I think we've just about wrapped up our time here on EU Confidential. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. I'll be happy to come back. Great. That was European Competition Commissioner Margrethe Vestager. Now, in an era where Margrethe Vestager is a name known around the globe, perhaps even more than her boss, Jean-Claude Juncker, it's clear that the politics and glitz of the antitrust world are big news. After three years in Europe, Politico is expanding into that world of competition policy starting mid-May. We'll do it with our signature combination of details, scoops and analysis, and by welcoming two new journalists into our fold who will cover both the legal and economic sides of competition. They'll work under Politico senior policy editor Christian Oliver, who, before joining Politico, covered competition at the Financial Times, writing about major cases including Gazprom, Google Shopping, Google Android, along with Apple and other state aid tax cases. So from Polish coal mines to Danish bridges, and from Formula One racing to football transfer windows, we'll have you covered. If you want to be part of a new high-level competition conversation, complete with visualizations of the latest trends, then make sure you read our new competition journalists as they connect the dots between policymaking and politics surrounding antitrust, state aid, cartels, and mergers on both sides of the Atlantic.
And now it's time for our favorite part of the podcast, the Brussels Brains Trust. We've got a special lineup this week. Hi, Alva Finn. Hi, good morning. And Lena, our other regular panelist, she is off holidaying in Latin America, so she can't join us this week. But we are not sad at all because we have got the wonderful Carmen Porn back again in the studio. Hi, Carmen. Hi, Ryan. Thank you for having me again. Before we get started, a couple of quick apologies I want to bake into this session. My voice is a little croaky. I've been off running, training for the Brussels 20K, and somehow ruined my immune system. And we're also starting to hear a little bit of construction outside Politico Towers at the moment. So we hope that doesn't interfere with our discussions at all. Let's get started with a new category. We're very excited. We thought sometimes things don't fit into the EU WTF or the EU thumbs up mode. We've got EU LOL or EU LOL. I don't know which way you want to say it. What do you reckon, Alva? How should we say it? Yeah, LOL. LOL. Okay, that's it. So for our first LOL, we noticed that the Daily Mail has a got a little bit of outrage, possibly artificial outrage, over the idea that once the UK leaves the EU, gets out of the freedom of movement system that the EU has, that the EU might actually charge it to move into the EU for holidays and, and business trips. So there's a suggestion that the UK and its citizens might have to pay £6 for every three-year long-term visa for entering into the European Union. And the Daily Mail is outraged at this. Carmen, what was your reaction to the story? I laughed. It's funny. Um, you know, it's it's always funny to see how the Daily Mail react. I think they're the, um, the king or the queen, whatever you want to call them, of cherry picking because they do want to be able to do, you know, whatever they want. They want Britain to be able to, to make their own rules, but then at the same time, they want to have free access to the EU that they decided to leave and they push for that quite strongly and they don't want to pay for anything. But I think one thing that many people in Britain forget is that after Brexit, the UK will become a third country. So it will be the same as the US, Canada, but also the same as African countries, whether they like to be compared to that or not. So they will have to pretty much follow the, the same rules as third countries for the EU. And whether your UK or EU27, you do have to pay to get into countries like the United States of America. Isn't that right, Alva? It is. And I thought it was funny because like six pounds is really low. I don't think I've ever paid People so People pay that for coffee in it, London. And also it's going to be, well, the proposal is that it'll be valid for three years. I mean, that's that's a tiny amount of money. Yeah, what do you want? Half They'd a gin and tonic or three years <laughs> access to the EU? Get yeah, over yourself, Daily Mail. They'd be doing well. I mean, I would kind of bump that up. But I just... And also, the Daily Mail had other countries, what, what they pay. You have to pay £14 on arrival in Turkey, £18 to Egypt, £9 to the US. So still, the EU is lower than the US. £115 to India. I think they should be complaining about that. Well, maybe that's India getting some payback <laughs> for that uh, little empire episode that happened uh, a yeah. couple hundred years ago. I think it's fake uh, outrage, though. It is it, like it, the headline is misleading because then it later on also says that even Tories, Brexiteers have suggested even more for the EU to come through visas to the UK. So, yeah, I just I wish the the Daily Mail would just stick to the right narrative. This is silly. Now. Can I sneak in a little US LOL here? I don't know about you, but I watched the Michelle Wolf White House Correspondents Dinner roast. 
very controversial in the US. And I've got to say, I thought it was hilarious. I mean, some of the jokes didn't work. Not everyone's jokes always work. But she served up some real truth to people, whether they were in the White House themselves, the people who should be the targets of comedy at at that dinner, journalists. A bit of truth-telling about journalists who profit off Donald Trump. She had a go at Democrats as well. I thought she did exactly what she was paid to do. And I, I don't really understand the outrage from those people in the room either. Well, I must say, I didn't watch the whole thing. I just watched uh, maybe a few minutes, uh, the ones where she was making fun of the White House press secretary. And I did feel a bit cringy about it. I think, okay, Trump does that. Trump speaks very badly of women. But I also feel when you try to kind of be the same or you're trying to emulate that, it just didn't feel right watching that. And okay, Did she you buy the line that she was attacking Sarah Sanders for her looks and presentation? Or did you think that she was attacking her for her professional approach to the job? I think it was a bit of both. She did say she burns facts and used them as uh, to do smoky eyes. So it was, it w- you know, when you speak about someone's makeup, I do feel it's someone's appearance that you're speaking she about. She also blew the punchline. So the, li- the punchline she used was, maybe she's born with it, maybe it's lies. It is like, lies, Come on, Michelle. It should be... Yes. Maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's make-believe. That's so much closer to Maybelline. That's how I would have done it. Alva? <laughs> there you go for the next one. Next one. Just, hi, me. I'm available. <laughs> 2,000, 2,500 plus a business class airfare. I'm yours, my test <laughs> correspondent. Yeah, I mean, I totally disagree. I think the With rea- which one of us? For, uh, the whole thing. I think the whole way that uh, people reacted to it was because she was a woman. It's a very gendered approach. If a man had said that about someone's makeup, no one would care. And it was about her makeup. It wasn't about her weight. It wasn't about how she actually looks. It and she was said it was such, perfect. Yeah, it was, it such, was a perfect Exactly. Eye. Like, it just, yeah, I think... Uh, why do we have those standards for for women and not men? Yeah, I think she nailed it. And I think a lot of this, again, it's faux outrage. I mean, you have watched many of the roasts in the White House before. There is nothing that she said that it was as bad as people have said before. And also, we are now in the era of Trump. I mean, clearly things were going to be mean. I think He's, it was a lot And there's of- an idiot in the White House. Of course she had to go for him. Well, I have to be neutral on that issue. But what I will say is that I think there's a lot of journalists who like access to the White House, and they were trying to shift the focus from her criticism of them because journalism has profited from the arrival of Trump, and the people who are White House correspondents certainly value their access, and they didn't like that criticism. So I think they turned it into this toadying effort to say, oh my God, Sarah Sanders, how terrible that you were treated in this way, instead of actually doing a bit of self-examination about how journalism operates in the era of Trump. Carmen? Yes, I wanted to say something about the, you know, the fact that we hold her to different standards because she's a woman. I do feel that as a woman, you should try not to do the same as men, as in make fun of other women. I feel there should be a bit of, I don't know, sisterhood, if we can call it like that, because then if we just turn, if we criticize men for the way they treat us sometimes, but then we turn around and do the same thing to other women, then I think we shouldn't criticize them at all. Now, we might need to move it up a notch in seriousness, not that the US administration isn't serious, but we now have an EU WTF on a Holocaust theme. So bear with me while I elaborate what is, you know, fairly shocking, let's say. About a week ago now, but we just missed it, uh, sneaking it into the last podcast, a German rap duo who promised to, quote, make another Holocaust in their lyrics, won the country's top music prize. 
a prize that was awarded on Holocaust Remembrance Day. Germany has now announced that the entire awards ceremony and system is just deleted for good over the outrage over this incident. The rappers Kalija and Farid Bang won the Best Album Award. Their album was called Young, Brutal and Handsome, and it contained the lyrics, quote, My body is more defined than Auschwitz inmates. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't understand why anyone would think that those are interesting rap lyrics, and I don't understand how someone would get through the nomination process to be selected for the Best Album Award, and how could people not notice that it was Holocaust Remembrance Day, given that there's a whole series of other anti-Semitism issues in Germany right now. There are people protesting to defend the rights of Jewish people as having human rights just like everyone else. I just don't understand how a music system could deliver that result on that day. Alva? Yeah, I mean, I think in other countries, lots of people have won awards for saying things about women, people of other races. I think there is a obviously Jamaican rappers against the gay community. uh, Exactly. A hypersensitivity towards things around the Holocaust. But I mean, when you just said that lyric there, that didn't really shock me that much, actually. And obviously, rappers say a lot of things. I think it's kind of silly to scrap the whole award on the basis of this one mistake that they made. They should just do it again next year. And I don't know, like uh, give it to someone more diverse and people who respect in their music other peoples and other nations. But uh, it is very bad timing, obviously. But over one lyric, if they had a lot, then I would be more surprised. But yeah, it just shows that you need to be very careful about stuff like this. Common. As Alba was saying, it's true that rap is offensive and I feel the American rap is very offensive to women and Mm -hmm. we still listen to it and we still give it prizes. At the same time, it does, you know, that, that, that line did shock me because we've seen pictures of the horrific things that happened in the in the Holocaust. You would not want anyone compared to the body of an inmate at Auschwitz. And it is shocking that it's happening in Germany, given the history. And I have German friends who are actually telling me that in schools, they felt that they were instilled this guilt feeling about what happened with the Holocaust. And now you see this kind of things happening. So it's it's a bit weird. At the same time, it's also probably that those people that don't feel they should be politically correct and always feel guilty about what happened with the Holocaust, maybe had a, an outburst. Is it something we're going to face more and more, not specific to the Holocaust, but this idea that as the people who lived through World War II or other horrific experiences literally die, that people's connection to those experiences or their sensitivities around those experiences just naturally wane off? And and is there anything we can do to keep that remembrance or that understanding alive? Should we even try to do that? Yeah, I think about this, like, for example, the Irish famine. People make jokes about it all the time, but literally 8 million people died. And I think Irish people are very sensitive to it, even still, because lots of our ancestors would have died, and it, it caused us also to be people who travel the world. So I think it is true that some people are going to have more sensitivities around the Holocaust, other mass killings or things like the famine. And it does 
gradually dissipate, I think. But the closer you are to it, the closer it will feel when people kind of poke fun at it. And that's absolutely natural. So I think in some ways the outrage around it reminds people, you know, what happened in Icewich is really serious. You shouldn't really compare, like, that your... Your abs <laughs> your abs, to Auschwitz. Yeah, look like a person who's in Icewich. It's a terrible comparison to make. Mm-hmm. Now, let's move to something more positive, our EU thumbs up. We missed one last week, which was around the EU moving to propose whistleblower protections, a consistent standard of protection for people who want to essentially alert the rest of the world to corruption or fraud or some other breaking of the law inside uh, the organizations that they, they live and work in. Is that worth a thumbs up? Definitely. I think so. I think we've seen a lot of whistleblowers coming to ends that are, are not good, uh, ending up in prison, these kind of things. And that should not so happen. So that was LuxLeaks, also yeah. Snowden on the run for years. Yeah, that absolutely should not happen. And I think the way that they marketed it as well, this whistleblower stuff, is that in a globalized world, uh, when we have like big multinational corporations and also it, a lot of states doing things between each other, that we need to have protection for people who are brave enough to come out and highlight things that are in the public interest, just like Edward Snowden did. So I think it's great. I agree. I think that the the problem is, and I think this is a problem with many laws, is how well it will be implemented when it gets there, because it has to be implemented by EU countries and and the national governments. Because indeed, these people do sometimes risk everything. They risk their life. They risk their freedom to do that. And they believe in the greater, they're doing it for the greater good. So obviously, they should be as much as possible protected. Well, Carmen, Alva, thank you for joining us on the panel this week. Thanks again. Thank you for having us, Ryan. That's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Now, remember, we are more than a podcast now. We're a column. We're a newsletter. We're going to be events. So if you want to formally join our community, we'd love to have you. Just go to politico.eu forward slash registration and check the EU Confidential box and you're in. You get everything sent to you directly. You don't need to find us out there on the interwebs. And wherever you did find us, please take a moment to rate, review, or subscribe because that will help us grow the community. It will help us get better at doing our jobs. And of course, podcasting is a team effort. So I want to thank Andrew Gray and Wei Dong Ling for making this episode of EU Confidential possible. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.